All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the DFO Rundown Podcast with Frank Saravalli and Jason Greger on DailyFaceOff.com. Delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to episode 66 of the DFO Rundown. The Troy Bodie, or maybe the more popular Mary Lemieux edition, number 66. I'm Jason Greger alongside Frank Saravalli. And once again, brought to you by Fan Tracks. If you're into fantasy hockey, baby, or any type of fantasy, you want to go to Fantrax.com slash DFO Rundown. That's where you can enter your team for a keeper league, a season-long league, a redraft league, whatever you like. And you can enter to win a signed Nathan McKinnon jersey at Fantrax.com. Frank, how you doing? I'm good, Jay. What's up? Good. I almost forgot whose jersey it was there for a second. Nathan McKinnon. I'm like, boop. That's a big one. Second, uh, That's a brain freeze. So yeah, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm really excited for our guest today because it's rare that, um, you know, people always like to know, like, really what happened, what happened in a situation. I think many people remember, uh, what happened with Tim Peel last March, um, and the game between Nashville and Detroit. I was caught with a hot mic for literally like, I don't even know if it was two seconds. It was, it was pretty short and, Ultimately, he was supposed to retire six weeks later, ends up, uh, that was the last game he ever officiated, and uh, he's going to join us today on the pod to tell uh, the whole story and, and how he's doing and, and what went wrong and what went right and everything else. Yeah, this is, uh, it's amazing to have Tim part of the team. I can't wait to see what kind of insight he's able to share and help explain to fans and viewers sort of what's happening behind the scenes, give them insight on what it's really like to officiate an NHL game, and I think 
getting a chance to listen to the interview, you'll also get a sense of Tim Peel, the person as well, which um, to me is equally important, if not more so, um, you know, obviously an accomplished official, but a guy that has a lot to offer. Yeah. So, hey, uh, normally I know we got an intro, but uh, Frank, I think today we'll both agree. Let's just get right into it. We'll bring in uh, to the uh, woodjerseys.com uh, studio. Of course, go to woodjerseys.com. You'll see it right behind me. The uh, the wooden art of the Boston Bruins. Frank has Toronto. Oh, I got a new one coming. I think I'll have uh, two weeks time. I got a few new ones. So I'll be changing them uh, depending on uh, who our guests are. We'll have a lot of fun. But uh, if you want to take your fan cave or your room to the next level, go to woodjerseys.com as we now welcome in Tim Peel. Our next guest is actually not a guest at all. He's the newest member of the Daily Faceoff team, former NHL referee Tim Peel, who spent 21 seasons in the NHL as a referee, 1,362 games, 90 Stanley Cup playoff games. He refereed the 2014 Sochi Olympics, two Winter Classics, and one NHL All-Star game. Tim Peel, welcome to the Daily Faceoff team. How are you? Thank you, Frank. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to work with Daily Faceoff. Uh, I've I've always wanted to get into media after hockey, and I think this is a perfect fit for me. And I've always respected you when you're with TSN and the articles that you would write and so on. And and I'm really looking forward to this new opportunity and new challenge. Yeah, thanks. We're we're thrilled to have you, Tim. And I got to start here. It's what everyone wants to know. You haven't talked about it uh, publicly yet. This is your first time speaking mm-hmm. about. Uh, your departure from the NHL and how your career ended on the ice. So I'm going to take you back to March 23rd, 2021. You're in Nashville. It's a Preds Red Wings game. And as the game is going to commercial break, you're, you're on a hot mic and Mm -hmm. you're on the broadcast and you say there wasn't much, but I wanted to get a bleeping penalty against Nashville early in the, and that's when the broadcast goes to break. Mm-hmm. So take us through that moment. Um, what was your mindset? What were you thinking? Um, and, and really, when did you know that you might be in some trouble? So it's funny as a, as a, for people to, to understand as a referee, um, normally if you've called five or six penalties against one team, I think everybody kind of knows, hey, if you can find one against the other team uh, keep to keep them happy, then then that's what we do. But in this case, there had only been one penalty called in the game, and it was against Detroit. And when I called that penalty, I think it was Arvidsson that tripped the Detroit player. And when I threw my arm up, I was in the neutral zone, and I honestly thought that Arvidsson tripped him. But as soon as I throw my arm up, I'm like, geez, I didn't, he pushed him down. I didn't see it the way that I thought that I saw it. And I was working with a veteran referee in Kelly Sutherland, who is one of the best in the NHL. And I think it was more my defense mechanism when I went over to the box because we take a lot of pride Um in the penalties that we call to make sure we good we call good NHL penalties. And there's nothing worse than calling a weak penalty against a team and then that the other team scores on the power play. So I think it was my defense mechanism kicking in more of an embarrassment thing to a guy that I really respected a lot in Kelly Sutherland. And I said, yeah, it wasn't much. I wanted to get a penalty. 
which wasn't the case at all. I didn't want to get a penalty against uh, Nashville. And I, I just made a mistake. You know, I, I made a tremendous uh, error in judgment by saying, choosing the words that I did. And I want to back up just for a little bit. Um, before the game that afternoon, it was probably the last time I was going to see the National Predators organization. And they have a gentleman that works for for their team. His name's Pete Rogers. He's been their equipment manager forever. I've known him back to the American Hockey League days in Rochester. Tremendous person, took care of me for almost 30 years in the American League and NHL. And and so that afternoon, I went out and bought him a nice bottle of Camus wine, took it down to his office before the game. Todd Richards is in there, the assistant coach, and Richie and I and and uh, uh, Pete Rogers are sitting there for probably 45 minutes, w- way longer than I would ever spend in, in another team's dressing room prior to the game or their equipment manager's room. And, but I wanted them, to, I wanted Pete to realize how much that I appreciated everything over the years. And so we, Richie and I and Pete, we talked about, you know, my daughter, daughter horseback's ride, horseback rides. And we talked about kids playing hockey and the state of our game, what a good place that it's in and, and so on and so forth. So I didn't leave that dressing room or their Pete's Rogers office going, I want to get Nashville tonight. That is the last thing that I wanted to do. I had the utmost respect or have the utmost respect for David Poyle, uh, who's a tremendous GM, John Hines and his entire coaching staff, the players, and more, maybe more importantly, the fans, the fans of Nashville. You know, I live in St. Louis. I used to love going to Nashville to do, to do playoff games. They're passionate. They're, you know, we see what happened a few years ago when they made their great run. It's a tremendous hockey market. So my intention, as it was never in the entire time that I was in the NHL, was to get a team. And if any ref that would referee like that, he probably got fired over the years because that's just not how we officiate. And I wouldn't have survived that long and been chosen to work, you know, other than my first year in the league, I worked playoffs every year in the league. I wasn't a guy that was in one year and out the next and, you know, the, my bosses knew what they could expect from me night in and night out. And I took pride in that. I took pride in how hard I worked on the ice and So it was never my intent to get any team. And at the end of the day, I made a big mistake and a mistake that I am still paying for today. Um, You know, I, I spoke to this guy who wants me to get into public speaking. And he said to me just about my life story and the ups and downs of my career. And he said, do you understand that your audio clip was two seconds long? Two seconds. So you built a reputation up throughout the world, North America, um, with the players. I was consistently uh, ranked top five players uh, by the players, top five refs by the players. I built this reputation up in my hometown of St. Louis, my adopted hometown. I've lived here for 20 years. Um, and I built this reputation up that I took a lot of pride in and all of a sudden it was stripped away in, in a two second audio clip. Now imagine anybody else and their job and things that they said over the years that might've got caught on an audio clip, but weren't, 
And all of a sudden, I don't want to say my life was destroyed because it wasn't because I have an amazing family, but my career was destroyed. My reputation was destroyed. It was tarnished. I'll never be able to get that back. You know, when I flew home that day and I was driving my daughter to horseback riding, she's seven and a half years old. She she's sitting in the back seat and she goes, Dada, can I can I ask you a question? I go, Yeah, baby girl, what's up? She goes, Can you tell people that you weren't fired by the NHL? Now my wife had never told her that I was fired. Nobody had ever told her. So I don't know where she got it, but that was the perception of my children. And it and it still kills me to this day. And so going back to the incident, it's funny, uh, not funny, but after the game, our director of officiating, Stephen Walkham, has a strict policy. We're not to have our on our cell phones in our in the room. He doesn't want any distractions. He wants us to be focused, which is a good thing. So I hear my phone vibrating off in the on the corner and I go pick it up and it's my boss, Stephen. And I show Kelly Sutherland the phone and I'm like, and the first thing I thought of, because this play happened in the first period. And the first thing I thought of was, did we miss a goal tonight? Did a puck go in the net that we didn't see? And I think Detroit, I think Nashville won the game two or three, nothing or two or three, one. So I knew that it probably uh, wasn't going to determine the outcome of the game. And he, he said, you know, we got a big problem. And I, and I'm like, what? And he tells me, and, and I don't even, I didn't even remember it until I watched it. And I hang up the phone and I, and I said to the guys in the dressing room, you know, they're all looking at me and they're like, what's going on? I go, I may get fired tonight. And they go like, what? And so I quickly shower and change. And I go right down to the national dressing room. And I see their director of communications, Brendan Walker, Brandon Walker. And I asked to speak to Mr. Poyle and Mr. Hines. David had already, uh, Mr. Poyle had already left the building. So he put me on the phone with him. And I explained to him that that was not my intent. My intent was not to get Nashville. We, my partner and I called two penalties against him the entire game. So that wasn't my intent. I just said I made a terrible mistake. My words came out wrong. And John, John Hines, who's a tremendous human being and a great coach, he came out and he goes, Timmy, I know you don't, I know you didn't mean that. I go, John, I didn't. Like, that's not what, you know, I've refed you since you, since he's been a head coach in the National Hockey League. I go, you knew that I was always fair and tried to make it a, a fair, safe environment for the players and a, and a fair game for the players. And I go, I'm so sorry. And I could tell he felt bad because he, he could see how upset I was and that I felt terrible. So I got back to the room and of course I'm on the phone with, with our um, president of our association, Wes McCauley. And, you know, I've, of course I was extremely upset and I had talked to Stephen a couple more times that evening. And I wrote a letter to Mr. Bettman, Mr. Daly, Colin Campbell and Stephen and, and basically uh, outlined what happened and that it wasn't my intent. It wasn't my intent to, to, to do that. And so I went to bed that night. I still hadn't phoned my wife because I didn't know what was going to happen. And it was 11 o'clock back in St. Louis. And 
So the next morning I get to the airport. I knew I'd been taken off my game in Dallas two nights later. So I booked my own ticket on Southwest. I'm flying home. I'm at the Southwest terminal in Nashville. I'm at the gate and my phone rings and it's Steven at 7:30 in the morning. And he says, uh, you know, I regret to inform you um, that you've worked your last game in the national hockey league. And, you know, it still chokes me up to this day when I, when I had to hear those words and, and I didn't, I didn't say, Oh, please don't do it. I did. I knew it was done. And I said, okay. I said, I've got to let you go. I got to get on my plane. So I got on the plane, flew home, still hadn't told my wife. And now it's all over social media. So she's getting text messages from people all across the U S and Canada. I'm sorry. How's Tim? She has no idea what's going on. I regret that. I should have told her that night, but I didn't want her to worry about it. And I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. So I land in St. Louis. And of course, as you can imagine, my, my phone is blowing up and I like to tell this story because it really, it kind of, I don't, it kind of helped a little bit. So I land and you know, I'm name dropping here, but I've got, you know, Brian Burke and Wayne Gretzky and Daryl, every coach and GM and president of clubs reaching out to me, asking me how I'm doing players, ex players, you know, current players, etc. And the media people, you know, just, I had made a lot of good friends over, you know, 20 plus years in the national hockey league with, with the media. It's my personality. I like to have fun and engage and, and, and just be nice to people. And, and so the outpouring of support was tremendous. And so I land and my phone rings and it's a Columbus number. And I know David won't mind me telling the story, but um, so I don't have the person's name in my phone. It's David Clarkson that used to play for Columbus in Toronto and New Jersey. And, David will be the first one to tell you he did not really like referees or officials. And we got into it a lot on the ice, a lot. And so when he said, Hey Tim, it's David Clarkson, honest to God guys for a split second, I go, Oh shoot. He's going to, he's going to say, yeah, it looks good on you. I'm, you know, and, and he goes, I just want you to know, he goes, I just got off the ice here in Denver, I'm playing with uh, some ex players, and I just want to say what I what ha- what has happened to you. I think is is a travesty, and I just feel terrible for you. And he goes, when you reft, he played for four teams. He goes, when you reft me for the four teams I played in, he says, I know I wasn't easy to get along with. He goes, but I knew, and the my teammates knew when we were in the dressing room that we had one of the best refs in the league and we had one of the most fairest refs in the league. And he goes, that's all that I ever wanted. So it's easy for your friends to reach out to you in tough times like this. But when a player that I didn't even think liked me reached out to me, it it really made, made me feel great. So I drive home and I see my wife and she's crying She's extremely upset. I haven't cried yet. I've kept it together. And now I'm just on the phone all, all morning. And then um, 
you know, obviously social media was just running rampant, you know, you know, they talked about it on the golf channel, which is unbelievable. I was in people magazine. It was on Fox, CNN. It was on every sports show in the world. And I didn't watch any of it. And, um, I just couldn't, which was a good thing. I think I did the right thing. And then at one thirty in the afternoon, Kelly Chase calls me and he had called early in the morning. So, you know, Kelly and I are very good friends here in St. Louis. And, and he goes, well, Pills, he goes, Bobby Plager loved you so much. He thought he'd take the heat off you today. And I go, why? And it's going to choke me up. I go, why? And he goes, because he just got killed in a car accident. And Bobby was a tremendous, tremendous human being. And he, and that's what Chaser said, because all of a sudden social media in St. Louis went from Tim Peel to Bobby Plager. And that's what he said. He goes, he goes, people, he goes, Bobby loved you so much. He thought he'd take the heat off you today. And so I'm surviving the rest of the day. I'm surviving. Now my kids get home from school at at three o'clock, three 30. And as soon as I see them, that's when I started crying. And part of it was because of what happened, because it really upset me that um, they weren't going to be able to, to, they weren't going to be able to see their dad work his last game in the NHL down at Enterprise Center in St. Louis. The Blues were, you know, we know what Doug Armstrong and, and the, uh, the ownership group there are, they're phenomenal people. And they had actually done tickets up that said Tim Peel's final game. They were just treating me first class. So we had, we had, you know, 150 people going to the game, obviously my, my family and so on. And as soon as I saw my kids, I, I broke down because I realized that they wouldn't get to see me rough again. And, and then I, I, and I, I was crying but I, I knew a part of it was I was crying because then I had to tell them that Bobby Plager had died and they loved Bobby and Bobby just treated them like, you know, they were like, he, he loved them. And so got that behind me and take, then I take my daughter to horseback riding. Then I'm kind of back to normal. I, I'm not back to normal, but certainly a lot better than I had been previous few hours. And and then the outpouring of support came in, and you know, Joel Quinville, who's a very good friend of mine, and I just have the utmost respect for, you know, he called me up and, and, and he's like, you know what? He goes, you'll survive this. He goes, it's going to be tough. He said, and a few other people said this too. They're like, you didn't get charged with domestic abuse. You didn't get a DUI. You didn't use a racial tone some things that you may never recover from, you know, the end of the day, I made a mistake. And there's a lot of people that are on TV in all sports right now that have made much bigger mistakes than I, than I have had. And that's the great thing about our country is we give people second chances. And Joel's like, you'll survive. He goes, you're going to, you're going to, you're, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just, I know it's tough right now. And it was those type of phone calls from people that I really respected and, and had been around the game for so long that, that helped me get through those things. And so after that happened, that was on a, that was Wednesday morning. 
I had been asked to coach my the spring program here in Chesterfield for the the uh, 11 and 12 year olds for the spring program. And my good friend here in St. Louis, this guy by the name of Tony Sansone, very well known here, good friends with Chaser and a lot of hockey people and very successful businessman. And he calls me up. He goes, this was on Wednesday. He goes, we're going to this restaurant tonight. We're going to this bar tomorrow night. We're going to this place tomorrow night. He goes, you need to get out so people see you. So they don't think that you're, you know, you're dying from this and that Tim Peel, Tim Peel's life is over. And I said to him, I said, Tony, I can't go out tonight. I need to stay home with my wife and just decompress and, and just gather my thoughts. So, but the next few nights I went out with him and it, and it was kind of, it was good for me because I needed people to see Tim Peel as the person that they always saw. And I didn't want them to think because it was true. I wasn't going to go down to my basement and feel sorry about myself and go oh, poor me and blame everybody else. Cause guess what? I had no one to blame but myself. The National Hockey League, I w- was employed by them for 23 years. Everything I have is because of the National Hockey League. I talked to Bill Daly a couple times since, since since this incident. And Bill and, and Mr. Bettman, I have nothing but the utmost respect for. They have treated me and my family so well over 23 years. They have treated our association very well. I made a very good living for 23 years. Very good living. Our nego- last negotiation, they're phenomenal. They they treat our officials with tremendous amount of respect. So I'll never say anything about the National Hockey League. They had to make a decision based on my actions. I put them in a bad spot. And I also put our officials in a bad spot going forward in the rest of the remaining uh, part of that season because it's all anyone wanted to talk about. So, and I apologize to them as well. And um, so anyway, so now I've got to coach the spring program and I hadn't, you know, Jamal Mayers and I, former player, we coach, we coach uh, a team together here in St. Louis. So we're always at the rink together and, you know, uh, it's St. Louis. Everybody knows who everybody is. So when I walk into the rink, everybody knows there's Tim and there's his son Bronson and, so the whole day I'm, I've got severe anxiety about it. You know, I'm like, I'm, I am very stressed out. The only time that I've been really worked up about seeing anybody throughout this process, because I knew as soon as I walked in the rink, everyone was going to go. There's the guy that got fired. Tim Peel got fired. What a shitty way to end your career. Instead of four weeks later, roughing my last game, having my, friends and family there, having my kids there on the ice, hugging the other players, you know, people coming into your room. It was supposed to be a great day. It was supposed to be awesome. And I've thought about it several times since, since, since this incident and about how much fun it would have been. But I realized it was over. So now I'm walking in the rink and I've got to, I've got to put a brave face on, you know, because I'm hurting inside big time. And there's all these coaches and, and parents over on the over in the corner, and I walk right over to them. I go, 
hey, I go, hey, guys, what's going on? I go, anything new in your lives? And they just kind of looked at me and started laughing. But I had to make I had to make fun of myself because if I couldn't walk into that rink with my head down yeah. and feeling sorry about myself. I couldn't do it. It's not my personality. And I just could not do it. And the same thing was the first time a couple of days later, I took my daughter over to the golf course and and people are funny, you know, people are coming up to me. Hey, I'm sorry. And I'm I'm looking at them I'm like, dude, my seven-year-old daughter's standing here. Like, can we talk about this another time? But people just care and I get that and they wanted to make, you know, wanted to see how I was doing. So um so anyway, I've rambled on long enough. I'll I'll let you guys take it from here. So Tim, yeah, thank you for sharing. I mean, that's raw, honest, emotional, all those yeah. things. I wanted to hit before we sort of dive into your life story, just on the actual incident itself. You know, you had mentioned that that's not what you meant to say was a a self-defense mechanism there. Um, But to go back to the idea, and I I think this is what everyone had latched onto. I, I, again, I can't speak for everyone, but myself as a, as a reporter covering it was it wasn't so much Tim Peel wants to get Nashville. That's not, that was never really my takeaway. I think what had everyone mm-hmm. up in arms was the idea of this makeup call. I think everyone mm-hmm. has the general notion that it exists, but I think what, what was so jarring to everyone listening to it was, oh, wait, this is actually a real thing. And so right. can you sort of take us through that, you know, yeah, mindset and, and what that's like? See, I've heard that for years and it's, it's, it's so not your point of view necessarily, Frank, but it's very inaccurate. This mindset of a makeup call, what it is, is if, like I mentioned earlier, if I call so many penalties against one team, I can't miss one against the other team. Now, does that mean that I've called six penalties against Detroit And now I'm going to go look for a call against Nashville. Not at all. That's not what happens with our referees. What happens is your antennas better be up and you go, I better not miss a penalty. I can't miss a penalty against Nashville because I've just, I've just given Detroit six penalties. I can't miss a penalty. Like, you know, I I, got to ask, I'm going to go off script here, but do you remember when, Tim Donahue, the NBA official, mm-hmm. uh, was fixing games and got and obviously got fired and went to prison for it. You know, he had a gambling problem and was tied involved uh, involved with some bad people in New Jersey. I have often, you know, people have asked me, well, could that happen in the NHL? I go, not not a chance. If if a referee called three or four penalties in the last five minutes of the game that weren't NHL penalties, everybody would know about it. But in the NBA, you can, there's 10,000 in the last 30 seconds, and nobody really blinks about it. But in the NHL, that would just never happen. And do have, have has ever there are times when I've made a call and other officials have made a call, and the guy goes, "Man, that wasn't something," and you go, "Yeah." I thought it was worse than what it was. You know, maybe it was a hook on the hands because with officiating, it's all about sight lines and it's so easy for the fans, uh, media, 
coaches and so on with iPads and the bench now, when they look at a play, they're looking at it from up above, right? That's how they're, every replay you show is from up above looking down on the play. And every call that we make is in real time on the ice. I'm in the corner. Bodies are, are in front of me. Guy gets a high stick on the, on the half wall. Three players are, are, have got their backs to me. I don't see it. My partner, maybe he's fortunate enough. He picks it up. But that's how things get missed in our game is because, A, the game's fast. B, it's, we have to call it in real time. And we have people moving all over the place at, at, at the entire during the entire game. And so it's so easy for people to, to watch, watch a replay from up in the rafters and say, I, I can't believe they missed that call. But going back to your point, we don't make makeup calls. We just uh, make sure that we don't miss a call. So Tim, and, would sometimes, you... and sometimes you're going to still miss the call. Yeah, but but our mindset is I can't miss a call here right now. So, but you cannot call phantom penalties. Now I didn't. My penalty, I thought he tripped him. That's honestly what I thought. But then I watched the replay. He pushed him down. But from my angle, I thought his, I I thought Arvidsson skate caught the uh, the Detroit player skate, and that's how he fell down. So I didn't have a good sight line of it on it, obviously. And I overreacted. And there's been many times with any official in, in the National Hockey League that you throw your arm up and you're like, oh, shoot. I didn't see that the way I thought I saw it. It's the and first it's just, thing they teach life. you in, in, in officiating is sell your call. Sell your call. You know, you can't take your arm down. You've already put your arm up. And, and so you've got to live and die by it. And, and I... All the players want, I called a penalty a couple of years ago. It was on Boone Jenner in Columbus. And it's, it's funny. I was parallel to the play. I was backing up. He was coming in on the uh, opposing uh, defenseman and, and, uh, and, or I'm sorry, he was back checking on the, on the uh, opposing forward and I thought he grabbed him because I was parallel to him. And in, a, in officiating, parallel is never good. You have to you have to have a sight line. You have to be on an angle to see it properly. So as soon as I made, as soon as I called, it, I go shit. He he did not he did not hold him there. So they kill the penalty. I go over to the bench, and he's sitting right in front of Torts, who I love. And I said to Boone, I go. I am really glad you killed off that penalty because I said, I thought you held him. I thought you took your free hand and held him. I said, I'm really glad that you killed that penalty. And Torts looks and he goes, thank you to me. And two or three other players right away, they go, oh, don't worry about it, Pilsy. But they would have worried about it if they got, got scored on. But the reason that they their attitude now completely changed is because I was showing that I was human. I made a mistake. I owned up for my mistake. Now you can't say that you can't say that to a team three or four games in a row. You, you can't say that to a team three or four games in a, three or four times in a game. You can't say say that to a team three or four times in a row because they're going to be like, "Well, you're making a lot of bad calls. You know, you're always over here apologizing." But there's going to be once in a while where you're just human. It's in it's in every sport. We see it in every sport that that's officiated. Is officials are going to make mistakes. And it's how you deal with it after and be humble 
don't be cocky and confident. I was that early in my career where I thought I had to, when we went to the two referee system, I thought I had to make, make a name for myself because I'm working with Don Koharski, Kerry Frazier, Terry Gregson, Mick Magoo, Bill McCreary. And here's this kid that had never left in the NHL. So I was young and cocky and arrogant to, to a certain extent. And I even said to Stephen Walkham years ago, I go, man, I wish I had been more like Tim Peel now than Tim Peel when I first got in the business. Because Tim Peel now gets along with the players, communicates with the coaches, lets things roll off his back a, a lot easier. I took it too personal early in my career where if a player said something, I, I got my back up. And you can't be a good official like that. You can't. One of the best officials uh, that I ever saw that was good like that was Paul Dvorsky. He 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 had a phenomenal relationship with, with the players. And so in turn, they gave him some slack if maybe he was having a bad night because officials are going to have a bad night just like players do. You know, I remember I was working a game in, in uh, Florida and I had food poisoning. You know, I was on, you know, you know what happens when you have food poisoning. You're in the bathroom a lot. And I had to go and work that night and I felt like shit the entire game. And I don't even remember how the game went, but there's times that you've got to go out there and you, you're going to have a bad night. It's just, it's life. And, uh, but going back to your point, Frank, our refs do not make, they don't make makeup calls. What they do is they try to put themselves in the best position to ensure that they don't miss a call, that they don't miss that next call that really is going to uh, define how the rest of the game goes. Because if you do get that next call against the other team, when the other teams had five or six penalties against them, that team that just had five or six penalties against them, their temperature level comes automatically comes down. Because they're like, okay, boys, now they forgot about it. They're like, okay, boys, we got a power play. Let's go to work. So I hope so that you, Tim, you. Would it be fair to say that, you know, in that situation, you, you're you're like there's a lot of 50-50 calls, I would assume, in, in a course of an NHL game. Right. And so uh, 50-50, some are, some are called, some are not. Everything's, you know, in a split second. No one's going to make the, the right decision every time. I totally respect that. I think it's a hard job. So do you think, though, that when it's five or six penalties and the other team has none, when it's a 50-50 call, you're like, well, I'm calling that one. Would, would that be a fair, like, is there a lot of 50-50 calls as an official? But if you're saying it's a 50-50 call, you're basically saying that it's a one-minute penalty, right? Yeah, and there's not our really refs, such a thing. Our refs don't call one-minute penalties. Okay. We, we don't call a penalty just for the sake of calling a penalty. And what I, what I, what I did that day and, and the mistake I made was I was in the neutral zone. Kelly Sutherland, the ref, was 20 feet from the play. And this is a guy that had ref 10 Stanley Cup finals or eight or seven, whatever it is that he's ref. The gold medal game in Russia. I should have deferred to him. The call gets missed. It gets missed. It's a trip high in the slot. You're in, you know, um, that was my mistake. I overreacted. And... Why did I? I have no idea. I had a brain fart. I don't know why I called the penalty. But I honestly, I, I know why I called it because at the time I thought Arvidsson kicked his feet out. That's why I called the penalty. 
But if it's 50-50, our refs do not call 50-50 penalties. Because what happens is our referees are rated throughout the season on their calls. And on based on their calls and what type of season they have determines whether they get playoffs or not. If you have an official that's consistently making weak calls, uh, then the, the NHL will not put him in the playoffs because they can't trust him. And that's the biggest thing is about, about the guys that consistently work the playoffs is the league trusts them. They've, they've seen this wide range, long time uh, clip of, of their officiating for and they're consistent night in and night out. Are they going to miss calls? 1,000%. Are they going to make weak calls? I would say very uh, – it, it does not happen often. Every good ref is going to make – you could ask Bill McCreary, Don Koharski, Andy Van Helman, oh, have they ever made a weak call? Absolutely, because they thought they saw it different. But the guys that work the playoffs every year, it's because the league can trust them and they know that they are consistent and they don't call weak penalties because a weak penalty in the NHL, like I didn't call that penalty because I wanted it to be, uh, because I, I thought it was, I just wanted to call a, a, a weak penalty because then if Detroit had scored on the power play, Nashville's going to be all over me. I called the penalty because I thought he, he, his, his, he got tripped. Now, what I said in aftermath was my biggest my biggest mistake wasn't calling the penalty. Twenty plus years, I've probably called worse penalties than that. But my mistake was the verbiage that I used at the penalty box, which was, you know, as I've mentioned several times, was was not my intent. My intent was not to get Nashville. That is the furthest thing. I've never, like I said earlier, you don't survive 20 plus years if you have a reputation of trying to get a team and, and officiating in a certain manner like that, because that right there is unacceptable. And do I wish it, the outcome had been different? Of course I do. But I understand because we can't have the perception that that's how officials uh, uh officiate the games. My biggest mistake, and I can't say it enough, is the verbiage that I used was not at all what I intended. And all I ask sometimes is if people could sit back and go, man, I said, said some stupid things in my life too, you know, whether it be at work or at a house party or wherever. I just, that's what happened. And I just said it at the worst possible time. And in an, in a, in an environment that I'm mic'd up, um, but that wasn't. Not only are chance, you mic'd so. up, though, and again, not to excuse what you said, but so you're mic'd up, but it also just happened to be at the exact moment that someone in a broadcast truck somewhere had the volume keyed up, that well, it also goes out live. Well, that's funny you bring that up because um, there's a couple things here. One, if we didn't have a TV timeout, nothing ever would have been said. I would have gone down, I called the penalty. I would have gone down to Nationals in, in the corner, gotten a position by the net. I never would have 
had a conversation with Kelly because the game just sort of moved on. And then two, Ken Daniels from the Red Wings broadcast called me the next day and he's like, he wanted to see how I was doing. And he said, we had picked it up in our truck and we, we squashed it. And unfortunately for me, um, you know, it didn't get squashed in, in the other feed. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'm the one that said it. Um, but there's, so there's, there's some, and, and then the crazy thing is, is I, you know, the NHL asked me to come back for one more year last year to work with the younger officials. And cause I was, so you were already reti- supposed to be off the ice. Yeah. I was supposed to retire the season before. And Steven was, was kind enough because, you know, the league takes care of us very well. And, and it given me another year and, and, and then this is, you know, how things happen. So, Hey, wait a second. Are, are you, so you were actually not even supposed to officiate last year. You were supposed no, to. No, no. I, I was supposed to retire at the end of the uh, season before. So that would have been the 1920. Yeah. The 2020. Yeah. 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 I was supposed to retire that season. And uh, I think it was, yeah, I was supposed to retire that season because I think the year before I broken my fibula, Jonathan Taze had fallen on my leg. Um, so, I, yeah, it was supposed to be the end of that season that I was supposed to retire. Yeah. Tim, but, I want to hear more about the rating system. How does that work? How Do you see your numbers and see your grades? No, no. no. Um, that We have, a, you know, Stephen has, has his, his supervisors um, that are all obviously ex-officials and very well qualified. And, you know, Billy McCreary's in the Hall of Fame and Don Van Massenhoven and Paul Dvorsky and Rob Schick and, you know, good, good officials. Um, Don Koharski was. And, and, but they'll just, they'll, they'll sit down and, and they'll just, you know, Stephen Walkham watches every game. He knows the tendencies of our guys. He knows how they work. And, um, you know, I don't want to really get into the, to, to how they do things because that's, that's really is their business. But at the end of the day, we have 34 referees and they take 20 of us to the playoffs. And, and so I, I, it always bothers me when I hear fans or, or not so much players, it's more fans uh, saying that officials aren't held accountable. Officials are really held accountable. You know, you don't, you don't have a good year. You don't work the postseason. You work the postseason. You get paid bonus money, you know, for each round that you work. There's a lot of incentive to work besides the pride factor. Like I always took pride in, you know, I, other than my first year, I had worked playoffs every year and I always, and whether it was one round or three rounds, I always took pride in the fact that I was consistently a ref that was in the playoffs every year because there are some refs that unfortunately never get an opportunity to work playoffs. So, you know, we've got a, you know, our Stephen Walkham and, and his supervisors, they'll, they'll sit down at the end of the year and they'll go over who they feel has worked well and who hasn't worked well. But, but I think that they, Tim, I think that brings us back to, I think really if you're a fan watching and you're, trying to 
wrap your head around sort of how last season played out and go back to the, the conversation that you had about one minute penalties and how they don't exist and that the referees that get to the playoffs are the ones that the league can trust. I think that sort of brings fans to the crux of what they believe is the issue, which is why isn't the game more consistently officiated from September all the way through to late June? Because they look at it and they say the game changes when you get to the playoffs, the threshold for a penalty, what actually is a two minute penalty is different in late April than it is in October. And that's sort of what drives people crazy. See, I completely disagree with that. And, and I've, I've said, I've said for years that, um, the, the, the way the players play in the, in the postseason compared to the regular season, as we all know, is, is night and day. There are some players that never throw a check for 82 games that are finishing their checks in the, in the playoffs. And that's the best thing about the Stanley Cup playoffs, you know, is how that it's amazing how these athletes are, are able to raise uh, their level of competition from the regular season up 10 notches into the playoffs. It truly is remarkable. And, but you also have, now you have the 20 best refs in the league. And what do you, I know it probably gets says in the regular season, but I can guarantee you that any coach on any of the teams in the postseason one of the first things he's going to say in his pregame talk is we need to stay out of the box. We need to stay out of the box. We cannot take penalties against this team. If I'm the Islanders and I'm Barry Trotz, I'm saying we cannot take penalties against Tampa. Their power play is too lethal. So I truly believe that are there missed calls? Absolutely. It doesn't mean that but there's missed calls in the regular season. And just because a guy is 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 considered one of the top 20 in the league doesn't mean that he's going to not miss a call. That's unrealistic to think for the fans, the media, the coaches, that an official isn't going to make a, miss a call. Mm-hmm. They miss him in the NBA. They miss him in the NFL. They miss him in every sport. But what happens is, is the players are more disciplined. And I truly believe that they are much more disciplined in the, you know, uh, uh, in the playoffs than they are in the regular season. I, I and, can see that. Cause like I, I could, I could see what you lose in the playoffs are some of the lazy penalties. The, the penalties that's exactly what I was going to say. Stop, you stop skating and, and you Correct. look and you, and things like that and you hold, but I, I mean, I, I think even not even playoffs withstanding Fans see this new crackdown that the NHL, they just sent out a video about it, about mm-hmm. the increase in cross-check penalties that are we're probably going to see starting in you know this mm-hmm. preseason and in the regular season. I think the normal fan that's sitting at home or a casual hockey fan that doesn't know much about the NHL sees that press release, sees that video, and they say, why aren't we just calling every cross-check? Why is that? But, but this is... Every once in a while, we have to retool our game. We have to refocus on certain areas. We just don't have the rule book and go, okay, we have the rule book. We never have to worry about anything again because we have the rule book. 
because I can remember how many years ago was it? It wasn't that long ago. We had a crackdown on slashing because slashing got out of, out of hand. And yeah, poor Crosby. He was losing a finger every now and again. Like, yeah, I, well, I'd say that tongue in cheek, but like no, so many no. guys were breaking fingers left and right. Cause they were getting slashed on the gloves. Right. Yeah. Mark Mathot lost his from a tip from Sid. Yeah. So every, I think it's, and I'm using this word again, but I think it's unrealistic for people not to think that every once in a while, we're going to have to get together in the summer, the PA, Colin Campbell, Stephen Wacom, whether it's Russ McCauley or whoever, coaches, general managers, sit down and say, okay, where are some areas that we think we can improve on? Can we improve on slashing like we did a few years ago? Can we improve on the hooks on the hands that we we did a few years ago. Cause I can tell you right now, if I missed a hook on the hands, the last couple seasons, as much as some people might go, Oh, that wasn't much. The first thing that you would hear from the players on the bench, that was a hook on the hands. That was a hook on the hands. So we've gotten, we've got to a good spot where, where the players, this is what they expect night in and night out. They expect us to call the NHL standard whether it's tripping, slashing, hooking, etc. So did we did we soften up on the cross checks? Not intentionally. Anytime you revamp or retool any of these these rules, it's because you didn't it's not because you sit in the room at the beginning of the season and go, yeah, we're not going to call cross checking this year. That's not how it happens. But what happens is sometimes certain rules uh, deteriorates not the right word, but they they slowly maybe erode a little bit further from what they originally were put into place for. And cross checking, did we miss a few? Of course we did, but we missed a few slashes. I'm sure we missed a few trips. We missed a few hooks. But the GMs and and Coley and Stephen felt like you know what? I think we just need to refocus here because because what happens is. Though I'm sure they showed those, obviously they did. They showed those clips to the officials at training camp, just like when I went to training camp. And throughout the year, I as a, as an official would watch those clips that they had sent us, and and so that I could refocus and go, okay, don't forget, this is our, this is the standard, because as much as you don't think as an official, that ah, wasn't that much on the ice. Then you watch the replay, you watch it on TV, you go, man. But sometimes when you're standing right there, it doesn't, it doesn't look that it didn't look that bad. So I think that like any new rule or any rule, there's times throughout the evolution of hockey that you're going to have to sit down and refocus and retool on it. So, Tim, I want to go back. You came into the NHL in, in October of 1999, so the 1999-2000 season. And and that year, there was a four power plays per team in the NHL. And then it actually got up, uh, coming out of the lockout, it was as high as 5.85, so almost six per team, right? And then the next year is down to five. This past season, actually the last five years in NHL history, are the five lowest power plays per team 
in the, in the history of the game, right? And the game's faster now than ever. Mm-hmm. So I think some people look and say, like, are the players, like, are we talking the players are that much more disciplined that in 2006, teams were literally one team on the ice would have as many power plays in a game as both teams do today. Is that an issue? It 100%, and I don't even have to think about it, can tell you all the credit goes to the players. I'm telling you right now, I'm not going to BS you. I'm telling you right now, all the credit goes to the players. When we came out of the lockout, there were a couple factors. And we had to change our game, and Stephen Walkham did an amazing job with, with the new hooking and holding standard. So there's a couple different factors. One is the players had to adjust. They Think about this, Greg. They've been doing this for some of them for 15 years. They've yeah. been playing a certain style for their entire career. And now you ask a defenseman not to hold a guy. You ask a forward as he's back checking, can't put your stick around him. Well, that's how we, that's how they played in junior. That's how they played in the American Hockey League. That's how they played in every league prior to the NHL. So now you're asking them that they've, they've been doing it like this for so long to all of a sudden change overnight. Not going to happen. It's unrealistic to think that that could happen. And of course, there would be 100%, there would be a learning curve from our officials. We, at the beginning of, of the new standard, we called penalties that we wouldn't call, not just now. But 18 months after we instituted that standard, because we had to get comfortable with the new standard and how the game was going to be called. But I can tell you right now, when the last few years that I was on the ice, I didn't have players go, how come there's not more penalties? I think the penalties stick out right now. Boom, I hear announcers all the time. That's what happens when you get your stick parallel. Boom, the sticks and sticks around his hands. Yep, there's his free hand. You know, we have these, we, we show these clips at camp and you hear these announcers going, that's that's an NHL penalty. It's been called like that for years now. Players know what to expect now. And if you're going to be a player that's out there and using his free hand or hooking on the hands, he's not going to play in the National Hockey League. Coach can't put him out there. Can't trust him. So 100% the credit goes to the players on this because they've learned to adjust. And think about all the in, in, that all the players over the last five, six, seven years that have come from the American Hockey League, where that's how we that's our standard in the AHL. So when they come to the National Hockey League, they're already programmed. Yeah, I can't hook on the hands. Can't use my free hand. So. So then I have one more, um, only because like way back in the 90s, Mary Lemieux and Brett Hall were, were pretty vocal. Uh, they didn't like how things were being called. That was before your time, Tim. And they're yeah. like, you know, I'm sick of having guys ride all over. Yeah. And, and that's true. They're, you know, guy, you know, you used to water ski off of other guys for sure. Um, the NHL's best player. Connor McDavid, who's not nearly as vocal as Lemieux or Brett Hall and definitely does it in a calmer notion, says, hey, I think we need to call more penalties. Now, McDavid uh, in the last two regular seasons has led the league and and had the most penalties called against him. He's the fastest player. But then in in eight playoff games, he never had one. Does he have like him individually? Is he like when you look, no one skated ever as fast as he has, Tim. Mm -hmm. Is he a harder guy to officiate? Because of the angles, because I'm not if most of the opposing players can't keep up to him. And I'm assuming some of the refs at times will struggle. as well. Yeah, no, that's a good that's a good question, Jason. Like I can remember 
first couple games I had him, you know, I, when I retired, I was 55. And <laughs> so, so I'm looking at Connor McDavid coming down the wings and I down the wing and I felt like one of those turnstiles, you know, <laughs> that you push in the subway in New York. And, and um, I read that stat um, during the playoffs this year. And I wish I could give you a better, as far as his, and I know you didn't specifically ask me about his games. I didn't see any of Edmonton's games. I honestly, I, I, I didn't see a lot of the playoffs this year. I was busy with the kids and, and, um, but I don't think that he's not too fast for us to call penalties. Like I, I, I really, as far as him not getting a call in the playoffs, I can't give you a comment on that because I didn't see any of the games, you know, can, can I, but I can say this in, in all confidence, our referees didn't go out there going, yeah, we don't want to call any penalties in Connor McDavid's favor, That that's the, you know, when Sidney Crosby, you know, he's one of my favorite guys of all time. And Hey, guess what? Him and Ovi, that's who the fans came to, came to see. They came to see Connor McDavid. So we need to make sure we don't miss calls against those guys, you know, and that's how I always officiated is, is I made sure, you know what, I better not miss something against Sidney Crosby because they're here to see him show off his skill set and excite fans and so on. But I know our officials don't go into that, into that series going, we're not going to call. I didn't see the games, you know. Okay. No, that's fair. And actually, just yeah. for just to be accurate, I just looked up the numbers, and actually, the Kachuk brothers and Marshawn and Brendan Lemieux uh, actually did have more minors called against them in the regular season. Which, the way they play and they stir things up, I could see probably they engage guys right. and punch them in the face maybe more right. than it does. So I was right. just, I was kind of curious when you know how. And, and here's my last one is. You know, a lot of the perception on the outside is, uh, and I've always been one that I think officiating is extremely tough. I'm not really hard on officials. Somebody's going to miss a call, but I think they get the majority of them right. Um, the standard, though, isn't necessarily set by the individual officials. Is it set by the league or is it set by the officials? You, well, like, Where does that standard come in and, and who, who's kind of the one who outlines what the standard should be from year to year? Because if you have 34 officials, everybody is going to have a different opinion and a different viewpoint and an unconscious bias. It's just natural at some point. But, but they shouldn't have, they shouldn't be confused on and that's what Steven's done a good job with is that they, they shouldn't be confused on, on what our NHL standard is because we, we, if, especially if you've been around for a, for a long time is we watch a tremendous amount of video at training camp. He's consistently sending stuff out every week uh, during the regular season. There should be nobody on our staff, especially because they've reached the highest level of, of officiating in hockey that should not have an understanding of what the standard is. And if they do, then they're probably not going to work in the national hockey league for a long time. So the league is very, uh, it gives our officials great direction on what, what we are supposed to call, what the standard is and what Steven has tried to do. And I think he's done a good job at it is develop consistency from your number one ref to your number 33 ref. And, and that's tough to do. Because you've got a, in every other sport, you've got your your you know your your first line, you know your McDavid's and Crosby's. You got your second line, you know your Hyman's and and uh, whoever, and you got your third line, and then you got your fourth line. Is it any different in officiating? 
not everybody can be a stud. Not everybody can be the best ref in, in the world. It's been like that for for a hundred years. So what, as, as a director of officiating, what his challenge is, and he's done a good job with it is to develop a consistency from your, your, the guys that are possibly rated further down to your top rated guys. And that's where the standard comes in. So the guys know this is what I'm expected to call every night. And there's going to be nights that they don't. And what he'll do a good job of is he'll throw out the ear. He, you know, he would call me and say, Hey, a couple games, you kind of, you know, miss, you know, a couple hooks in the hands and need you to tighten up there or whatever, you know, I need you to, to get back on standard because every official is going to have an off night in the national hockey league. You, you, uh, your flight gets delayed. You get in at four in the morning instead of you're supposed to get in at nine at night. Missed flights, you know, or canceled flights. Um, We don't fly charter, you know, we're flying commercial. And, and especially during the wintertime, there's a lot of challenges there. And so, you know, you're going to have guys that, that are just, they're not going to be, uh, and Steven doesn't expect it. He expects you to be a pro, but he's, he, he's realistic. He knows you're going to have, you could have an off night because yeah. you're, you're, you're exhausted, you know, just like, just, the like the play, just like the players have off nights. Exactly. Exactly. So, so Tim, I, I wanted to, to close out the interview. We usually have a little fun with rapid fire before we get there. Okay. The last question for me is how are you doing now? You've had about six months to digest this. Uh, and how do you think your journey and your background, your path to the NHL has helped you sort of digest uh, the end of your career, not ending exactly the way you thought it would? No, I appreciate that, Frank. It's a good question. And um, it's funny because even other than the first day when I saw my kids, I really didn't have too many bad days because I'll bring up, you know, you didn't bring it up, but I'll bring up the puck daddy thing. When I did the tequila shot with Greg Wyshynski, completely stupid of me. Lack of judgment. Shouldn't have done it. Uh, night before a game, I put the league in a bad position. I thought I was doing the right thing because this guy was con- consistently beating me up. And I thought I was, I was going to meet him and win him over. And, you know, I, 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 should never have let a blogger get to me and I did. And it was a life lesson and something that I learned from, but I knew I made a, I knew I really put the league in, in a bad spot because here's an official night before the game doing a tequila shot. Not a good look. If it was red wine. Maybe you could get away with that. I don't know. So I'm joking. <laughs> um, so, but with this, I knew I knew I put the league in a tough spot, but I knew that that wasn't my intent. I knew that I, my words just did not come out right. You know, what I meant to say and what I said was not at all what I felt. And so, um, so my wife said to me after, you know, like the first week or two, she goes, she goes, I can't believe you're, you're, really not, you're not upset by it. And I wasn't. And I go, Tisha, I go, you know, my wife's from here from St. Louis. And I go, you know, my life, 
I go, I was, I was, uh, left an adoption agency for a few months back in 1966. I go, I grew up in a trailer park in New Brunswick. You know, my mom died of cancer at age 50. I go, I've been kicked in my crotch my whole life. I go, but I've never let it, uh, define me or, or, or ruin me. I go, and, and I said, you know, that puck daddy thing that was in 2015. And when that happened, I could hear the rumors, you know, from our guys that I worked with as careers done, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, he'll never work playoffs again and so on. And I said to Stephen Walkham that summer, I said, if you, I said, cause I used to be a linesman for Stephen in the American hockey league in, in St. John, New Brunswick, when the American league was big in the Maritimes back then, that's first where I got, where I got started. And I said to him, I said, you know, my personality, I go, I go, I'm not going to go down in my basement and, feel sorry about myself because of of the tequila shot and not working playoffs this year. I go, you know, my life story, you know what I've been through and, and the resiliency and the perseverance that I have. I said, I'll, I'll be back. I said, I'll be back and I'll be back next year and I'll be working playoffs next year. And he goes, I know you will. And sure enough, the next year I got back. So even through all this, I, I just said to Tisha, I go, and I'm a big believer in things happen for a reason. And, and, you, you cannot live your life with regrets. And the other big thing I said to Tisha, I go, I go, babe, I've got an example to set for these two kids that are nine and seven. I got started late in life. And I said, I got an example to set for these two that when you get kicked in the, you know what, you don't, you just don't fold up your, your suit and go home or fold up your tent and go home. You, you need to hold your head up high. And, and I had this referee camp here in St. Louis and all the money we raise actually goes to the Bill McKenna foundation, which is Mike McKenna's granddad. And I gave this, so I didn't want to open up our, this is obviously the first year, this is our third year having a camp, but obviously the first camp since my incident. And I didn't want to start off the camp, you know, talking about me and my incident because I wanted to be upbeat and I've brought in Joe Vitale to come in and pump the kids up. And, and, but one of the kids kind of gave me a shot at one point during a presentation and, and they're like ages 14 to 24. And he gave me a little shot and it was about my incident. And I laughed and I, and I, so I just paused for a second and I said, do you guys want to hear the story? And they're like, yeah, yeah. I go, okay, here's the story. So I sat and told them the whole thing. And a couple days later, um, this mom comes up to me and at the rink and she goes, I wish your camp was a week long. I go, why is that? And she goes, the life lessons you're teaching my kid are unbelievable. He just loves you. He loves your attitude and your approach. And like I just said, Frank and, and Jason, like stuff happens. And, but at the end of the day, it's how you deal with it afterwards. And it's how you persevere and how you hold your head up high and the life lessons that you want to teach your children and other people. And, and I'm excited. Like, you know, I'm thrilled for, I said to Tisha two months ago before Frank had approached me about coming to work with daily face off. 
I said to her, I said, I'm excited about the fall. I go, I go, I'm excited about uh, new opportunities and, and, you know, the, my new challenges in, in my life and, you know, being on the show with you guys going forward, it's going to be a challenge. I'm going to have to learn. And but that's what I'm excited, excited about. And I think that there's a real opportunity for the fans to get a different perspective on the game. And when I watch games and we go to the intermission and they want to talk about the power play and they want to talk about the penalty kill, it's like, uh, yeah, I've heard that forever. You know, I, I think the fans are ready for a different perspective and a different view. You know, in the NFL, we go to Mike Pereira. PGA, we go to the rules official. NBA, they go to Steve Javi. The, 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 our sport is ready to move into, I feel, into that next uh, place where we go to a rules analyst. And it isn't about uh, carving up the officials. It's about, like I explained earlier, where we watch a replay because we're watching it from up here. Well, that's not realistic. We don't watch the play. We don't watch the game from up there. We're watching it down here. You know, Eric Lindros and the Legion of Doom lines out there, and they're all 6'5", 240 and I'm 5'10, 170, and I'm trying to get good sight lines because these guys, that's realistic. That's how our guys officiate night in and night out. One quick thing at every playoff game, we have a standby referee. And I can remember it was a couple of years ago. It was when the Blues won on their run. So it was 2019. And I'm standing by in San Jose. And I'm standing by the Zamboni and I've got my equipment on, but no skates. I'm ready to go if someone gets hurt and I'm watching this game. I'm watching how fast it is and how quick our guys are moving and out of the way and pucks flying and sticks flying. Because when you're out there on the ice, you know, it's fast, but you're programmed to deal with it. And you've done it for so long that you, you, purposely slow things down if that makes any sense but if you're a fan and you watch a game on the glass or you go up to the suite or the press box it's, it's totally different, different. It's totally completely different. different. Oh, not night it's day. completely different Looks i recommend every box. i recommend every reporter at some point to go find a way to watch a game at the glass because you like your perspective and your respect for the game changes immensely hundred percent, hundred percent. I agree. So, but to answer your question, Frank, you know, I'm doing great. Um, looking forward to working with daily face off. I think we're going to have a lot of fun with that. And I'm just looking forward, you know, like this, the, my jacket here, it's the central States team, Jamal Mayers and I coach it. We just got back from Chicago this weekend. We were in Grand Rapids two weeks ago, times that I would have missed with my Sonny's nine, you know, the last couple of years, as much as I love the game and, and loved being with, with my fellow officials, you know, I, I miss being around my kids and, and they need me home. And that's, so that's exciting. That's the best part of it. So. Yeah. It's awesome. awesome. Let's yeah. do All some right. rapid fire. Yeah. Let's do a okay. rapid fire presented by uh, DoorDash. restaurants and more delivered right to your door. And right now for first time users, use the promo code rundown DD and you will get uh, 25% off and no delivery charges. All right, Tim, the only rule we have in uh, rapid fire is you have to answer the question. All okay. Right? Okay, so uh, here we go. Uh, Tim Peel, let, let's let's see how good your memory is. Um, 
Your first NHL game, who are the two teams? Ottawa, Vancouver. Ottawa, Ottawa, Colorado. There you go. (laughs) Nice. Which player, you mentioned David Clarkson, but which player over the years did you have, like, who was the best at giving barbs that would make you laugh on the ice? No no question, Steve Steve Ott or Christopher Stieg. I once said to Christopher Stieg on the bench in Calgary and to his teammates, I said to his teammates, I go, is he married? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, Chris is married. And Chris goes, yeah, I'm married. I go, your wife must take a lot of Tylenol because you never shut up. And they're all laughing and so on. So Christopher Versteeg and, and Steve Ott. Then conversely, was there was there a player that you mentioned, David Clarkson? Was there anyone else that you just you, you just didn't like? Tyler Wright. Perfect. Yeah. And and I know he's a great guy, but I don't think he liked me. And we just, we were like uh, oil and water together. So it was, it was Tyler, right. As an official, how many games, now this isn't really, but easy. I was looking at your uh, games officiated over the years on an average season. How many games are you officiating? 73 regular season, five or six preseason and then playoffs. So, so guys that could work the finals could work. 100 games, but normally it's a 73-game schedule. And when you adapted to the two-man, did you mm-hmm. prefer one man or two men? I Well, I, I was just happy because I got a job in the NHL. There could have been eight guys out there. I didn't care. So I had always repped one man, but that was OHL. You know, I had never worked at the NHL level, and I'm getting to work with Frazier and McCreary and Koharski and Mick Magoo and all these guys that I'd looked up to my entire career. So it didn't. I loved it. Best advice you got from a veteran official when you were young? Be humble. Be humble. Have good communication skills. Don't be cocky. Don't be cocky and arrogant. And I think that basically is in any any realm in life. Don't be cocky and arrogant. Just be be humble and, 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 you know, you need to be confident on the ice, but there's a fine line of being confident and cocky. You mentioned you were confident and cocky early on. When did that change? What forced you to change and and be a better communicator? Um, I don't know exactly why it changed. I just, I think as I got older, Jason, I think as I just got older, I was like, you know what? Quit taking yourself so serious on the ice. And, and I had a couple bosses tell me that too. Wacom was one of them, I think, early, you know, 15 years ago. He's like, maybe you just need to chill out a little bit on the ice, you know, and let things roll off your back a bit. So it was probably then. Of all the officials you refed with, who would have been the, or who was the best hockey player? He's got to know the answer to this. They have a scrimmage every camp. They play a I lot know. of hockey together. I you know. know. Uh Scott Cherry, drafted by the Washington Red Wing, uh, Washington Capitals, uh, linesman, Scott Cherry. Scott Cherry. Uh, where does Tim Peel rank in the officiating skill? Like, would you be a first liner, a fourth liner? What was your skills as a player? I, I was that guy, Greg's, that I was great in the room. So that's exactly where they wanted to leave me. It was great in the room, okay? <laughs> Awful. Awful. They used to make fun of me at training camp about my hockey skills. So I'd play like half the games and then the other half I'd stand there on the bench and coach and have fun. And we'd always have a blast. But yeah, not very good. Not very good. And uh, your cocktail of choice. Red wine. 
Ooh. I thought you were going to say tequila shot. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's too easy. Come on. <laughs> Tim, thanks so much for joining us in the DFL Rundown uh, brought to you by Fantrax. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for uh, being honest and telling us your story. I think fans are going to appreciate that. And we look forward to uh, everything you have uh, upcoming this year on, on Daily Faceoff. Sounds good, boys. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Look forward to the season. And Tim Peel. Raw, honest. Frank, I'd never heard the story. I know you and Tim have talked before. I've never heard kind of everything that went down. And, um, you know, I, I liked his honesty. He didn't, he didn't make up any excuses. He didn't, uh, he didn't want to pass the buck to anyone else. He says, Hey, you know what? I, I said something wrong. And well, it's amazing though that like a, a two second clip for a lot of people, it was just like it ruins his reputation. And I'm a big believer that actions speak louder than words a lot of the times. And if you look at the actions over his career, I think I I, I can understand. I, I understand what happened. I understand why they did what they did. Um, you know, Tim, I think, understands it. But at the same time, you know, some people who want to try to go too far and, and attack someone, I think uh, he gave us a good reason to at least think about, you know, how you view someone after they make a mistake. Look, I also think it was so human. I mean... How many times have you made a mistake in your life and you either A, you make fun of yourself or B, you make up something just to sort of cover yourself, a self-defense mechanism? You know, yeah. he he says that as soon as his arm went up, he knew that what he thought he saw and what he did see were not the same thing. As I said in the thing, I was a, I was a youth hockey official. I started refing games in high school. The first thing they tell you is sell your call. So he's standing there. He has to sell his call to the fans in the arena. And then more so, he gets back to the bench. And and again, not putting words in his mouth, but the way he explained it, my guess is he was sort of covering to Kelly Sutherland, his his partner, saying, oh, man, I really just wanted to get one there. Like, you, it's just a flippant comment that that is said that and then to think of all the other, you know, it's like a plane crash to think of all the things that need to happen as he explained it in a TV timeout, hot mic, one broadcast, you know, realized that it was still hot and turned the volume down. The other one, it seeps through and it goes to, you know, goes to air right before the break. I mean, just a lot of unfortunate timing um, and he owned it. So, um, you know, props to him for, for coming on and, and, and telling the raw and honest story. And then the other part is that he's not sitting in his basement crying, that he's willing to put himself out there publicly again uh, to apologize and explain what happened and, and to move on. And look, uh, I think that's part of the beauty of hockey and pro sports. Oh, 100%, man. Uh, you make one mistake, it's, it's definitely not going to find especially a mistake like that compared to, and I liked his analogy of, you know, what are real, you know, life-altering mistakes, and his wasn't, and, uh, you know, he's looking at the positive, so that's great. And the benefit for us is uh, now he's going to be on the DFO as a as a rules analyst and, you know, breaking down when uh, inevitably there's going to be some calls that people don't agree with, Frank. I can tell yeah. you that uh, this season, so uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, that was a jam-packed edition of the DFO Rundown brought to you by Fantrax, a customizable fantasy platform one of the best in the industries it offers a great fantasy experience whether you got a keeper league or you got a dynasty league or a redraft league go right now to get in for the upcoming nhl season you can go to fantracks f-a-n-t-r-a-x.com slash d-f-o rundown you register and then you're entered in a draw to win a nathan mckinnon jersey uh, have yourselves an awesome week frank and uh, we will talk to you episode 67 on friday thanks for listening to the dfo rundown with sarah volume 
McGregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. Delivered by DoorDash. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special coming your way this playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and let me tell you, it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal. Every playoff game day, you're going to be faced with four questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle. And here's a sneak peek into some of those questions we'll be firing your way. First up, you got to pick the winning team. That sounds simple, right? But there's more. You got to decide if the total amount of goals in the game will be over or under a certain amount. And that's where the real strategy starts to kick in. Next up, you're picking who's going to find the back of the net first. And you're going to want to be careful because that's one that could be cooked early on in the game. And finally, you got to predict which period is going to be the highest scoring. Will it be a barn burner in the first, a shootout in the second, or a nail biter in the third? That's up to you to decide. Now let's talk about prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? For the daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards to treat yourself to some fresh nation gear and you might even win a jersey from your favorite team. And for the big dogs, those who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge. Play now at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess.